Hello, this is World Canvas from International Programs at the University of Iowa. And tonight our topic is journalism and a free press in the age of fake news. I'm Joan Kerr, and we're happy to have you with us here at Merge in downtown Iowa City. It's a new location for us this year, and uh, it's lovely, I think. Um, we invite anybody who's listening to join us here on our monthly programs. Um, tonight we're tackling a topic that is on everybody's minds these days. Uh, what's the role of journalism in a free press in providing a check on government, on public and private institutions, and on individuals who wield power in our society? Um, what does the First Amendment protect, and do we as Americans still believe in it? Is a challenge to press freedom the first step toward authoritarianism? And finally, how do we find the truth in an age of fake news? We have a stellar group of guests tonight, uh, journalists and writers from all over the world, whose varied experiences and perspectives will give us a lot to think about, I'm sure. My first guests are members of the University of Iowa faculty. Just next to me is David Reif, uh, director of the University of Iowa School of Journalism and Mass Communication. Thank you. Yep, thanks. Mm -hmm. Next to him is Christopher Merrill, the director of the University of Iowa's <coughs> International Writing Program. Thank you, Chris. Thank you. Mm -hmm. So, David, I'd like to start with you with a very yeah. big, very general question, but yeah. what can you say about the state of journalism in America today? Um, well, that's a big question. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> when I think about that question, the first thing I think about is uh, it's important for people to understand that the problems of American journalism didn't start with the Internet. Um, American journalism began to lose audiences in the 1960s and 1970s, and if you've been a journalist um, in, a, in a daily newsroom, you knew that. Um, because they did everything they could to um, stop the um, diminishment of their audiences. Um, but they were facing some structural forces which really they couldn't take account of. Things like the fact that both parents and families began to work, um, and therefore no one had time to read the newspaper. Things like suburbanization, um, and the fact that the paper was mostly in the city, and more and more people were living out in the suburbs, and it became very costly, and so, uh, suburbanites didn't see that they had a lot in common with the local newspaper. Um, things like the incredible explosion of information. I mean, if you're given a choice between playing Call of Duty all day and reading the newspaper, Call of Duty is much more engaging um, than reading the newspaper. So um, your kids have 50,000 uh, things to do with information, and only one of them is news. These are sorts of things that they could they were, they were not in their control, um, and it slowly diminished um, their audience. And all of this happened before the Internet. And what the Internet did is accelerate um, the uh, escape of the audience from the news and then also um, took the business model out from underneath uh, the news industry. And that's when you began to see the enormous number of layoffs. Um, daily working journalists at one time, at their height, somewhere around 63,000, 65,000 daily uh, journalists working in daily newsrooms. Today, that number is somewhere around 30,000. So the number of journalists working in the United States has essentially almost been halved um, in about 10 years. So it happened in a very short time. We have the, number, the same number of journalists today working um, as we did in the 1950s um, at a time when the population in the United States was much smaller. Right? Um, the revenue stream for journalism today uh, in newspapers, which used to hire more journalists than any other, um, are down below newspapers in the 1950s when our economy has um, doubled in size. Um, and that, that doesn't seem to be coming back. Uh, the Internet uh, digital platforms don't seem to be able to sustain a newsroom of any size in and of themselves. And so 
that doesn't concern me for the national press. Uh, there's, you don't have to worry. There's going to be a New York Times. There's going to be a BBC. There's going to be a Reuters. There's going to be at least one major television network news channel, probably NBC because it has a connection with Microsoft. Um, so the national press is probably going to be okay. Uh, where we're really seeing the loss is in local and regional news, right? places like the Des Moines Register, which at one time was as good a newspaper as the New York Times. The New York Times was a regional newspaper like the Des Moines Register, and the Des Moines Register was a very strong newspaper, um, and that's no longer true. Um, so places like the Dallas Morning News, um, uh, the um, Des Moines Register, uh, the Boston Globe, the Sacramento Bee, the San Francisco Chronicle, these are the institutions that are crumbling. And after 10 years of this happening, we have no good way of uh, fixing it, and we have no good solution. Uh, my feeling is if you haven't come up with something in about 15 years, there may not be a good solution. Right? It may be that the newspaper is going the way of the dry cleaning business. Right? Your local dry cleaner is you know, a mom-and-pop organization and you know, owned by typically a family, um, two or three people working very hard to sustain it. And when they get tired, the dry cleaning business goes away. Um, and that's essentially what um, online news in these communities looks like. So that's the state of journalism before the Trump administration um, came into office. Um, now, the, the, the journalism has been a talking point of the Republican Party, as you probably know, for 40 or 50 years. Um, but what Trump hit upon, and, and so the Republican Party kind of sowed the seeds of this. And so what Trump hit upon was the fact that whenever he needed to rally his, um, his supporters, all he had to do was call out the word journalist or journalism. Um, they become um, a boogeyman uh, for his most passionate supporters. So you place all the issues I just described, and then you put on top of it this kind of political hostility at the top, and that's what's producing this great worry about journalism um, today and where it's going. Well, and then in addition to the newspapers, we have, um, you know, the coming of cable news. We have talk radio, which really yep. hits virtually every corner yep. of the U.S. And some of those people who live in more rural areas where they don't have a local newspaper. Yep. Um, so, so what do you think about that form of media? Well, so you know, it, it once was the case somewhere in, from the 1950s to the 1970s that journalists could pretty much patrol the, own, the, the boundaries of their profession. They get to decide who was in and who was out. Um, they got to decide what was news um, and what was newsworthy and what was worth circulating through the public culture. Um, and as newspapers diminished, these new forms of media began to uh, be produced, like talk radio, like cable news, and it simply fragmented um, the field that journalists occupied. The Internet has just, again, accelerated that trend. And so now a fewer number of journalists find themselves in a media space kind of cheek to jowl with all these other people producing news. None of them are journalists, and they have very little interest in journalism, and yet they're producing news. That's caused an existential crisis in the field. They don't know how to respond um, to that. Mm-hmm. You know, it might be helpful to just step back yeah. for a second and define what a journalist is and what a, a journalist's um, expectations are um, that the non-commentator journalist and a journalist who's just trying to report a straight story. Well, one thing you should know is that the profession of journalism is relatively new. Right? It was invented in the 1910s and 1920s. Before that time, there, was, there were journalists 
people producing news, but they came from all walks of life. Your minister may be a primary source of news for you in 19th century America. Um, it wasn't until the 20th century that journalism um, became a, uh, an occupational category of any distinction. Right? Um, and as it developed its own professional habits of mind and practices, it um, isolated itself from the community to the extent that most journalists uh, tended to write for one another rather than to write for their communities. Right? Um, they tended to want to impress other journalists more than they wanted to um, integrate themselves into their um, communities. That's part of the issue they're, they're uh, facing these days. Um, and they tended to be located in commercial news organizations, which had other varied interests. So I would make a distinction between uh, journalism as the profession, and you're not, a, you're not a professional journalist unless others recognize you as a professional journalist. Just because I went into a newsroom one day and decided to write for the newspaper doesn't mean I'm a professional journalist. Journalism is an occupational category. And then there are a lot of other people producing news that looks more and less like um, journalism, but certainly doesn't come from the profession. Mm-hmm. So uh, I, I think many people imagine that um, to be a journalist, you have to sort of somehow take a dispassionate look that, that um, we know about the term advocacy journalism now, yeah. and um, points of view are taken or are expressed openly by someone yeah. who is a serious journalist. Yeah. Um, help us understand um, whether, are, are there rules yeah. and regulations in this world? Yeah. Um, well, it's a, you know, it's a peculiar thing about American journalism that um, it's a profession, but not like the medical profession or the legal profession where you have to get a certification to do it. Um, you simply, in the law, you just simply have to work for a commercial, a commercial news organization. That's how it's been defined in, um, in uh, courts. Um, you adopt the habits of mind and the practices of journalism inside the profession, and you go through a socialization process that kind of turns you into a journalist. Um, so many people today are producing news who haven't gone through that experience, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, well, as you know, one of the things we want to talk about tonight is uh, fake news. Yeah. And um, a friend from the IWP sent a, a new article from PEN America to me today, and they describe uh, f- uh, fake news as fraudulent news defined as demonstrably false information that's being presented as factual news with the intention to deceive the public and the related erosion of public faith in traditional journalism. Yeah. Sounds about right. That sounds about right, although um, that last little part seems to be um, something peculiar to fake news today. We've always had fake news. There's always been people out there who want to produce information that isn't accurate, but they want to sell you on it. I mean, that's just, it's, it's an American tradition. It goes back to the, to the colonies. Um, and there's always been people who want to believe in news, I mean, in, in this news. I think the important thing you have to understand is that people don't process information in a vacuum. We tend to imagine that individuals are at home reading their newspapers and um, processing it through their own individual rationality. Right? And that's not how people process news. We process information through our social identities. Um, in other words, we look for news that tends to confirm things we already believe or that our groups already believe, right? and we tend to dismiss news that doesn't conform to that. We're looking for news that tends to privilege ways of thinking that we um, tend to uh, um, um, appreciate, uh, and we tend to dismiss news that isn't part of our social identities. 
that that's just a fact of human nature, that's a fact of human psychology, um, and that's always been true. What's happened is that the mediating institutions that used to take account of that weakness in ourselves have been severely diminished, like journalism. And so you're seeing those social identities become much more visible today so that it looks like we're much more tribal than we were in the past. We've always been tribal. It's just that we had institutions that we created to take account of that, which we've always done. I mean, that's what people do. You say, well, we have this weakness. We're going to um, work against it by creating an institution that helps guard against it. And those the, the 20th century solutions to those issues have um, been disintegrated. And as you know, it's much faster to destroy something than it is to build something new. <laughs> and so that's the moment we're in, where the things that we used to hold as stable have deteriorated so quickly, and we haven't built the new things to put in their place, and it creates a lot of anxiety and stability. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in a commentary you published in the Press Citizen over the weekend, you said that three of those institutions um, are, in your mind, primary in getting us to where we are just now. As you mentioned, journalism as an institution having been diminished, strong partisanship but weak parties in leadership, and the forces of globalism. Yeah, uh, I mean, it's it's a relatively unusual thing for a presidential candidate to co-opt an entire party. Um, Whatever your political persuasions are, I mean, it's just a fact of life that most leaders of the Republican Party did not want candidate Trump to win, and yet he won. I mean, how do you do that? You only do that when the parties and the party elite, the leaders of the party, are so weak they can't stop it from happening. Right now, partially they're weak because they no longer have journalistic partners who are also institutionally strong. Right, so Trump can go to Breitbart, he can go to Twitter. He can go to other media outside of the mainstream media to um, uh, speak to his supporters. Um, So the two are not um, unrelated, um, but these institutions have become so severely weakened that it's become impossible to patrol the boundaries of our information culture. And in that environment, our tribal instincts are showing through. Hmm. Well... Okay, so that, that's thank you. Scary. <laughs> yeah. So now we're going to go to the poet, and we're going to uh, talk to uh, uh, Chris Merrill. For those of you who don't know Christopher Merrill, he directs the International Writing Program here at the University of Iowa. And by the way, congratulations, 50 years this year, so congratulations on that. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, so uh, Chris's path has uh, uh, made him a poet, a journalist, a war reporter, a nonfiction author. He's an essayist, a translator, a teacher, and as you know, the director of the IWP. But I think above all, um, those who know him would certainly say that he's an observer of things, very keen observer of things near and far. And, um, you know, Chris... You've reported from war zones. You've traveled to parts of the world most of us will never see, many afflicted with violence and fear, hatred. Um, the truth can be so hard to find in these places we know best. How do you go to a, a location that is struggling and find the truth among all the confusion? Mm. Um, you don't. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, when I was covering the war in the former Yugoslavia, um, and I was doing everything I could to try to get the truth, I er learned early on that if I found myself parroting the line of certain people on one side of the conflict or another, 
that was a signal that I needed to get to the other side, to start interviewing different kinds of people so that I could get some sense of what the truth might be. Having said that, and I filed a lot of daily pieces and magazine pieces, then when it came time to write a book about it all, I was struck by how often I got it wrong and that uh, part of the writing of a long book, uh, Only the Nails Remain, Scenes from the Balkan Wars, had to do with looking at those pieces of journalism, the first drafts of history, if you will, and seeing where I got it wrong, where I hadn't dug deep enough, tried to tease out the meanings, and that's where it gave me a, a larger sense of what the, the, the writer's obligations might be. And one thing David was saying, it just struck me, I, you know, the... There's a fantastic Franco-Czech writer, Milan Kundera, who's always saying that, you know, when he tries to imagine where we are today, he said, in the 19th century, you got your news from novels. And what grieved him was the, the development uh, David talked about in about 1910 when we had the profession of journalism, because he said we gave it over to to journalists. And uh, I think, I'm, I'm guessing somewhere in his apartment in uh, in Paris right now, he's probably thinking, good, they've... Now the journalists have lost. <laughs> but, but he may feel he's too old for whatever the next thing is going to be. <clears throat> so when you're telling a particularly uh, you know, heartbreaking story, you're trying to, to, to crack the shell, most of us as readers or, or people far away in our, safe, in our safety, um, as a journalist, you want to tell a story that will actually have some kind of impact, and hopefully you feel strongly about the story. But uh, how, how do you do that in order to break through? Well, first and foremost, you listen, and you go into these situations, and you, you try to listen hard to everybody you're talking to, and you, in my experience, I thought I was always trying to listen for something beyond what they were saying or something under what they were saying, That, uh, particularly when you're dealing with a, a politician who knows how to evade answering questions, and, but I would be listening for overtones, and that, those were the places that I thought, okay, now that's... That's where I need to dig in. I might not get the answer out of that person, but it would open up the door to the next room I had to enter to to uh, take a survey of. Do you think that sometimes the only way you can actually get to the th- truth of a thing is through your poetry? Well, I've been thinking, I've been wanting to quote this line of William Carlos Williams from late in his life, this beautiful love poem he writes to his wife. He go, At the very end of the poem, he writes, My heart rouses thinking to bring you news of something that concerns you and concerns many men. Look at what passes for the new. You will not find it there but in despised poems. It is difficult to get the news from poems, yet men die miserably every day for lack of what is found there. And that's the part where I think that, you know, in a way, a literary writer who's trying to write something for the ages is hoping to get at uh, that kind of truth that is found in a poem or what Kundra would find in a novel and uh, a truth that we hope uh, encompasses many different levels of meaning. Mm-hmm. So you know writers from really literally every corner of the world and many of them have no free speech protection where they write. Many of them have suffered for it. Um, in many ways, journalists and writers are in the sort of the front lines of history. Huh? Yeah. I've been thinking to, uh, when uh, you were mentioning at the beginning about uh, authoritarian impulses, there was a great uh, Polish journalist writer, Richard Kapuscinski, who in one of his later books mentioned that whenever there's a revolution or a coup or an authoritarian wants to take over, the 
first places they go are the radio station and the TV station. And uh, it struck me, one of the smart things he did was he knew he couldn't really write about life in communist Poland, but if he went and covered revolutions in Africa and in Latin America, the decolonization of the 50s, 60s, and 70s, he might be able to tell truths that had a larger resonance. So uh, that's when he went to write a book about the breakup of the Soviet Union in 1992, the book came out called Imperium, you could see how he, how canny he was in trying to find a way within the strictures of the system in which he was working to tell the truth. Mm-hmm. It was often from the side, mm-hmm. but those works survive. Yeah. Um, so a uh, question for both of you. Um, what do we do about the cynicism so many people in our country right now feel about the government, about institutions that were once highly thought of and thought of as protectors of our great values here in America, and about journalism generally. How, how do we get ourselves out of this? I don't know if you're going to like what I'm going to say about that. <laughs> um, if you look historically, we tend to act in times of crisis. Um, it, it tends to take something pretty bad to happen um, for us to finally um, get our act together and build something new to stop at least that from happening again. Um, and so um, you know, I would say that that's probably true today. We're seeing the diminishment of these institutions. Everyone can see it. We're watching it happen. They're dwindling. We have this feeling of fatalism and this kind of apathy. We, we can't do a weakness. We don't know what to do. Really, the only um, the instance when that begins to happen is in a crisis. Mm-hmm. I would add Seth Meyers, Saturday Night Live, <laughs> Trevor Noah. I mean, comedians are truth-tellers when they're really good, and I think we've seen a lot of terrific work coming out of Stephen Colbert and John Stewart before that. Uh, that's a way of trying to tell the truth. I'm also conscious of the fact that an early print uh, master was Walt Whitman, wrote for all those newspapers in New York, and in the run-up to the Civil War, he essentially invented a new way of writing poetry, and he wrote Leaves of Grass. The first edition came out in 1855, and I've, I, I keep thinking that we're in a similar situation right now. Poets and writers will be trying to figure out how to make sense of our time. Maybe we're on our way to cataclysm. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) David, just to wrap up here I know that one of the things you research in particular is presidential communication so this of course could be another three hours on its own (laughs) but do you have anything to say about the kind of administration um, communication we have going on now? Go for it (laughs) (laughs) Well, the the easiest thing to say is it's unconventional Um, it's, it's very common for politicians and particularly presidents and those who work for them to frame issues in ways that align with their interests. Um, And some journalists would call that lying, um, but at least have some semblance or connection to um, a set of facts which we would all agree upon. Um, It's rare for a president to just... I mean, the New York Times now has an op-ed page has a running list of lies (laughs) that are just factually untrue. And the journalists are fervently (laughs) fact-checking If you go to the newspaper, if, if for those of you who still read it, you can see the actual fact, um, and yet there seem to be no consequences uh, for this president with his base of supporters. Um, and that's the easiest example, I think, 
of a group of people who have decided that Trump is one of them. He's my guy. And I don't care what you people say, he's my guy. Um, and it doesn't really matter what he does for them. I mean, he's, he, he kind of made a joke of it, but it's not very funny. He could commit a murder on Fifth Avenue and still probably win the nomination. And that was probably true uh, for the Republicans at that point. Um, so, so this is a new president. Um, and now the question is, in terms of lots of worry about the conventions that he's violating, uh, the political conventions that have been in place at least since World War II, and how sturdy they are. And I think that's an open question. I mean, they have existed for 50 years, and so they may survive this presidency. I mean, we will have another president at some point. But then again, the fact that he's kind of trailblazed this path of being so unconventional, that may also be a path forward for us, where future presidents see that they no longer have to adhere to these conventions. Um, so it's a, it's a troubling moment where... You know, with so much else in flux, this president seems to be running the nation like a reality show. You know, I'm, I'm just going to have to interject here, though. When I was covering the war in the Balkans, I and every other journalist was in despair all the time that it, we would report on these atrocities and this stalemate, and it seemed nothing seemed to change. But when I look back on that period, I realized that the daily reporting, the truth-telling, had an accumulated effect so that when the Serbs overran Srebrenica and there was that photograph on the front page of the New York Times of the woman who hanged herself, fearing what was going to come next, that was a moment that you realized they, in some, in some ways all the truth-telling had laid the groundwork for a groundswell of, of uh, activity and... In short order, we lifted uh, this, the lift and strike, and uh, the war came to a quick end. And I, I sometimes feel, I keep watching Trump every day, and I think, okay, now, now he's done it. At some point, people are going to say, wow, this guy is nuts. And there may be a time. I mean, the, the midterm elections, I think, will be really interesting. Um, most of the polls I've seen show that the Democrats are running 10 to 1. Um, these are early, and lots of things can happen, but maybe this accumulation of coverage is... A, it's not detracting from his core supporters. I mean, 40% of the Republican Party has consistently supported what he's doing, um, despite anything that he... Um, but it may um, uh, have an effect on those people who aren't such strong supporters of him in the first place. We really need Alec Baldwin. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, so I want to um, wrap up this segment and say a big thank you to David Wright yeah. and Chris Merrill for being with us and, yeah. and I hope you'll stay with us in the next part of our program the focus yeah. will be writing about war and radical social change um, thanks to all of you for joining us here for the live event at Merge World Canvas programs are available as audio podcasts on iTunes the Public Radio Exchange and the International Programs website uh, I'm Joan Kerr and for UI International Programs Programs. Thanks very much for joining us. Oh, thanks. Thank you. Hello, and welcome to World Canvas from International Programs at the University of Iowa. I'm Joan Kerr, and we're coming to you from Merge in downtown Iowa City. The topic tonight is journalism and a free press in the age of fake news. The focus of this segment is writing about war and radical social change. 
And joining us are two writers from the 2017 International Writing Program's Fall Residency. Next to me is Uba Christina Ali Farah, who is a fiction writer, a poet, a playwright, and a translator, originally from Somalia and now living in Italy. So nice to have you here. Thank you. Again. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. Next to her is Hajar Bali, a playwright, a fiction writer, a poet, and from Algeria. Thank you, Hajar. Thank you. Mm -hmm. So, Uba, if I may, I'd like to start with you, and I hope you've enjoyed your time in Iowa City this fall. Yes. Yes. I am. Yes. I'm yes. Enjoying this Good. Um, you shared some of your writing with me, some of your thoughts about uh, about writing in a country at war and then leaving a country you grew up in. And uh, um, we also talked about language, language of violence, language that defines our times, and our times also defining the language we use, the words we choose to use, the words we don't use, and the layers of meaning that could reside in any one word. Um, I wonder if you could take us inside your journey from war-torn Somalia uh, to Italy and help us understand what leaving has meant to you, and particularly a phrase you explained to me, to leave in the afternoon. Yeah. Yes, thank you, Jane. So um, a, a few years ago, I was, um, now I live in Brussels, but a few years ago I was living, I lived in Rome, and I worked with a group of Somali young refugees, and um, this school was, uh, was it, it was in a school of uh, Italian languages for, for refugees. And I was working with these uh, this young people. And, um, and uh, since we were often discussing about the difficulty of translating words in, Italians in, into Soma in Italian into Somali, uh, um, they proposed me, I was working at the time to, with a, pro a radio program, and they asked me to to just to talk every day about a word translated that was impossible to translate. And I decided to do this, uh, this program with these uh, this young, young, young people. And uh, one of the words that they, they, they wanted to talk about was the word partire in Italian, that means living. And uh, since Som Somali has a nomadic culture, nomadic tradition, there are many words to say living. And um, and so one of the, the people who were in the workshop talked about this word that was in a you know in Somali lullaby, that is Arabe that means living in the afternoon, and um, but it doesn't mean only living in the afternoon, but because you live in the afternoon only when something uh, um, something terrible happens because usually nomadic people either they live in the morning or they live in the evening at the beginning or the end of the of the day so living in the afternoon means it 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 um it it has this uh this meaning in 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 itself and um and it was very beautiful because uh, everyone was talking about the moment he decided to live and um, yeah, and we share these memories with each other. It's very difficult to talk about uh, uh, these kind of things because, uh, and on the one hand, you you like to to. I remember when I arrived in Italy uh, the first years. It was very difficult for me to to tell my story because it was uh, um, it's so complicated that I was always also afraid that people wouldn't understand. Or um, I, I didn't want also to look as a victim because uh, there is this kind of idea of shame when something uh, very violent happens to you, as if you you are responsible somehow. Uh, and uh, yeah, 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, another thing you, you mentioned in this piece of writing was that uh, some who have fled the violence in Somalia yes. don't use the word civil war, but instead use the term burbur, meaning yes. the shattering. Yeah, it's, yeah, it was amazing for me because they were always talking about it. Particularly, there was one of the, uh, the, the person who was attending the workshop. His name was, is Farhan. And um, he, um, he had s such a beautiful way to tell his stories. And uh, he would live, he, li he left Somalia often. He went to South Africa and then he went back and then he went to Kenya and then he came back and then he went to Yemen. As if he, his desire to go was always contained by, no, this desire of going back home. So that there was this kind of uh, idea of going back. And um, and and yeah, and they didn't say the Galkasokeye, uh, which means uh, civil war. But uh, if you translate it literally, in 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 Somali, it means uh, um, uh, to, to to war against an intimate. So there is this kind of uh, idea of intimacy into into the the word the Galkasokeye, and so. This is perhaps, I thought, perhaps this is why they are not using this, this word and instead they, they say burbur, that means the scattering, your, or the, the, the things that you, 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 you thought that they were there, st stable, that they wouldn't change, uh, suddenly they become scattered everywhere. Yeah. And uh, it is particularly important for me to talk about it today because as you have seen uh, from the news, uh, yeah, in the Mogadishu, there was this, uh, uh, this, um, yeah, this, yeah, there was this bomb that killed uh, 300 people a couple of days ago, and um, how to talk about it? Because in Italy, there is a, um, a, um, a journalist, a Somali journalist, Italian Somali journalist, that she was saying, "Oh, nobody talks about Somalia," and particularly in Italy, this is uh, something very uh, sensitive because it, it, Somalia used to be an Ital was an Italian colony. So the, the 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 idea that Italians don't care anymore about Somalia, even though they have a responsibility in what had happened. Um, she she was very angry, but at the same time, I think that it's very difficult to talk about these kind of things without without being uh, uh, talking about the victims. It, it 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 is important to humanize them, but at the same time, it's also you don't want to this kind of stare, this pornography of the the violence is is always something that uh, is very delicate. I think. And uh, yeah, difficult to deal with. Mm -hmm. Yeah, mm -hmm. uh, in the, the writing you do, sometimes you, you yourself are sort of part of the diaspora. You no longer live in Somalia, even though your family memories are from there. But um, some of the writing you do involves that first generation of refugees who have, who have themselves left, and then other stories you write are about that next generation that doesn't even know what the land actually looks like. They have no personal experience there, but they, they live that uh, experience through their, their parents. Why is this such an intriguing topic for you? Yeah, so in, in part it has to do with my own life because uh, when, uh, okay, when I left Somalia, it was uh, January 1991, and um, I was 17, I was very young, uh, but um, the civil war for me corresponded um, was I had a child when I was very young at 17. So 
the Sibyl was started when my, my, my first son was born. So if I have to remember how, how long, uh, yeah, that the war is, is the age of my first son. Uh, so 26 years, 26 years. And um, because, um, um, yeah, um, I mean, somehow uh, my idea, he didn't leave anything about the war. He didn't see the war. He didn't see anything. And uh, while he was growing up, because uh, he was interrogating himself all the time, what happened, what, and, and, um, and so I, th I started to think about his generation of these uh, young people who didn't have a, I mean, a, um, a personal memory of the war, but at the same time, they inherit it. And you, it, it is not because you tell them stories about the war, but because uh, there is something that we transmit through uh, uh, our body and um, scattered memory somehow, like the burbur, because uh, um, I, I realized in, 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 the, in the books that I write, memories are not... Um, um, how can I say linear? Mm -hmm. um, so, because you don't remember in a, in a, in a linear way. Yes, it's just uh, uh, you combine things, and uh, uh, so I, I thought that it was very important to think about this generation, this post-memory generation, because they are the ones who have the responsibility tomorrow. Not only them, but they have the responsibility to dialogue with each other. I mean, um, if uh, we don't discuss that, I. The other day I met uh, a group of very young Somali girls and they told me, uh, what, but we didn't know, we were talking about Mogadishu, how it used to be the city, this cosmopolitan city. But it was not out of nostalgia, nostalgia that we were talking about it, but just to know how the city used to be before them. And this is very important because uh, after a civil, the civil war, what the civil war does is that it divides people in the diaspora. So people don't talk to each other. They want to discuss because there is still something going on in, in, uh, in the country. And it's very important that this generation talk to each other and they are able to discuss and to deal with it and uh, not take the part of the victims or of the persecutors. They are the ones who can, uh, I mean, um, uh, yeah, uh, not ignore, but somehow they are not responsible mm -hmm. of it. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, so I thought that it was important yeah. because of yeah. that. Um, uh, <coughs> thank you so much. I, I want to move now just down yeah. down the line here and talk to Hajar just a little bit. So nice to have you with us. Um, so you're from Algeria, and you experienced the changes in your country some years ago when uh, there was an Islamic uh, uprising, uh, Islamist uprising, and you have written a great deal about this. And I wonder if you can take us back to those years when you were aware that things were changing. Uh, yes. Uh, until the, the 80s, the, the, the Algerian state was socialist with one, uh, only one uh, par par party, political party, the FNL. Mm -hmm. uh, which, uh, which was in an heritage of the national uh, independence uh, war. Mm -hmm. uh, at that time, the other parties, like the, the communist parties or others, they were all uh, clandestine. Uh, so the monopoly of the state on information was total. In 88, uh, happened was what we called the October Revolution. 
on 5 October, thousands of young people demonstrated in the streets of several cities, denouncing the single party, demanding more freedom and yeah. things like that. And this led to 150 deaths officially, uh, arbitrary arrest, especially from the communists uh, who were suspected to being behind the movement. Mm. At that time, I was teaching uh, in the university. Uh, we organized some strikes uh, to free our comrades. We drafted the Black Book of October, in which we received the testimonies of tortures, etc. It lasted a few months. Then the government was forced to opt for a democratic opening, uh, the creation of parties. There were about 60 parties at <laughs> then. We, on our side at the university, founded the first autonomous uh, uh, union of university teachers, magazines, publishing houses, associations, radios, and even the TV, which was still national, opened deba debates. There were programs where finally one had a right to a free speech. One must imagine this effervescence. You, you it was like uh, something we, we didn't even dream of uh, before. Uh, there was also a, com a movement coming from Kabylie, from, the, um, from another state, another city, which was, uh, uh, which was uh, fighting against the, um, the monopoly of Arabic language, we, because uh, um, asking for for recognition of our uh, native language ah. uh, so everything was open the, pre the press to uh, so so some independent and partisan newspapers were born rejecting the language of wood that was used until then some newspapers that wrote in algerian and the language the algerian language is a sort of creole uh, combination of Arabic, French, uh, barbarian, and all this. So uh, all this was uh, toler tolerated. The, the debates took place everywhere, radio, press, cinema, university, etc. But uh, when, how did it change? In January 92, uh, the, the is, there is there was an is the Islamic party who who was beyond all these uh, parties who was very popular who be, and who won the first uh, the first uh, tour of the the, the elections uh, and it was certain that uh, it was going to win the elections at the second tour. And so between these two tools, uh, the, the military uh, took the, the power, they break the military the, the coup. democratic. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And since there, uh, I, I can say that maybe some months after that uh, began the, the civil war the, with the Islamic uh, movements uh, mm -hmm. in the mountains who were uh, dans les maquis. And uh, against uh, against the power, mm -hmm. so this began. We can say approximately uh, at ni 93, 94. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I, you spoke with me uh, beforehand about um, the government 
um, did everything it could to convince the people that the Islamists were outsiders, were not uh, yeah. really Algerian, yeah. that it, they were them and yeah. we Algerians and the government need to fight against them. Yeah, we, we all, we all uh, thought that we could not imagine that uh, people from our family, I want to say, want to say mm -hmm. of our nation, could, could kill uh, brothers, could, uh, too, that we, we, were, we, we were having this idea of, of our unity uh, against uh, the colonialism, the French colonialism. It was still there that uh, strong uh, idea that we are all united. So for people, and, and uh, so the government uh, was uh, pushing this idea that uh, these people are not, are not from our country. They come from Afghanistan. They, uh, they, they were uh, uh, trained there almost. Uh, and I, w I must say that uh, what happened in France, I have a friend when, when that uh, uh, the, the, the cinema, the recent, yeah, the, the recent, recent events. Mm -hmm. I have a French uh, friend who called me and told me how how did you uh, how can you tell me how it began in Algeria with this. Islamic uh, war, and and she said, I, I said maybe what I can tell you is that at that moment we we thought that people are not from our people, and you must you must maybe think that uh, these uh, these young uh, killer are are our our, our people. Mm -hmm. It's it's what uh, it's what uh, what I thought first. Yes. Yeah. yeah, and uh, it was easy for uh, for the government to to say that and to say that there were there are external uh, uh, um, forces forces wow. uh, mm -hmm. uh, uh, and almost uh, always like always uh, French and uh, mm -hmm. and the West is trying to invade us and mm -hmm. things like that to to justify uh, the uh, in the other hand the. The violence of of the of the power also against uh, people. Mm -hmm. yeah. mm -hmm. And how did the the press respond uh, to all of this? Were did the press basically take the same position that the government? Uh, the press was uh, was between two fires. I don't, I don't know. I don't know how to say this. Yeah, so between the there was the government, the the military government, with that law. That new law, which uh, which um, doesn't allow allow to uh, to speak about uh, uh, security things, and mm -hmm. so so before before this law, there were many many uh, excess of power from from this this part, and on the in the other hand, there were the the Islamic uh, groups who were. Were very, who were very who who had who killed so many mm -hmm. journalists, uh, mm -hmm. especially at the first uh, years of the the war. So uh, there were some independent uh, journalists who who tried to give an, to give to to give another way of see, seeing without uh, following the government. 
and it was uh, it was not uh, accepted even by uh, by some some uh, we told them po democratic people because they were not islamist you know mm -hmm. uh, i can give the the example of the famous agreement signed in saint egidio in uh, 1995 uh, The main opposition parties, including the FIS, the, the, the Front Islamic, the, the party Islamist, who was at that time uh, stopped, they decided to meet a col uh, at a colloquy in Rome under the auspices of the Catholic community of Saint Egidio, opening up a perspective of, of reconciliation. Participants affirmed by a national contract written in six pages which stipulates the commitment to respect the democracy, the political and alter, alteration, alternation, the individual freedoms, including freedom of confession. All denounce violence as a means of achieving and maintaining power. For the first time, the Islamic Party is committed to entering the mold of a peaceful political solution and to apply the rules of the democratic games. But the military high command, uh, command categorically rejects the initiative by refusing any dialogue with the fundamentalists and a possible reinstatement of the disloved uh, party in the politic uh, arena. And the journalists at that uh, at that time, there were very very few journalists who who, who were following this possible idea of uh, of uh, becoming. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Mm. Uh, what what is the state of uh, uh, Algeria's uh, press freedom now? Do do you, as a journalist in Algeria, um, fear for what you write? Uh, So for the press, um, it's it's a bad uh, period. <laughs> mm. um, many are forced to resort to unsavory practices to to round off the end of the month. Some are approached by local authorities or by provincial potentates in various ways. Those who continue to fulfill their their mission without censorships are not seen by their own employers, since they continue to fail to respect the tacit obligation of reserve, not being able to avoid dangerous subjects, what we call dangerous subjects. Uh, they are obliged not to cross a red line, or which only the initiates know the outlines. They must continue to feed their newspapers with revelations about provincial mafias and local institutions. But they must be careful not to disturb the traffic from which the, the, the strings are pulled in high places, like the, traf the trafficking of Kiev to Europe, for example, uh, or the fraudulent export of foreign currency, Uh, the hand of informal trade by the border guard, the quasi-monopoly of the junt lenders with the foreign oil companies in the Sahara. So these are some subjects very uh, sensible that they, are, mm -hmm. they, they have no, no right to. So their articles are often reviewed uh, 
or even simply put in the basket. In general, all journalists know that the information that may involve the barons of the regime is not publishable. Mm -hmm. So today, the private written press in Algeria is at the end of resource. In addition to being let loose by those who have used it, it has lost the confidence of its readership. Despite the severe sanctions against journalists and calls for mobilization in their favor, Algerian society remains totally indifferent to their fate. The average reader, disillusioned, and who during the 90s bought at least two newspapers a day, no longer reads because also of, of the, the, the internet. He prefers the foreign television channels captured by satellite, especially French and Middle Eastern. Selling has reached the lowest threshold since the creation of the private press and despite the disappearance of many titles. At the point where most newspapers no longer display the number of prints in their bear. Hmm. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Well, it's, it's a real treat for us to be able to hear personal stories and you know your own, um, your own what you've dealt with in your own countries and your own writing and. Uh, um, I thank you both for being here with us this afternoon. So um, just next to me is Uba Christina Ali Farah, and Hajar Bali has just been speaking with us about Algeria. And, uh, and I hope you'll stay with us for the third part of this program, where we'll be joined by a freelance journalist from Belgium and an editor from Kazakhstan. And again, this is World Canvas from International Programs at the University of Iowa. I'm Joan Kerr, and thank you for being with us this evening. Hello, I'm Joan Kerr, and welcome to World Canvas from International Programs at the University of Iowa. This is part three of our program on journalism and a free press in the age of fake news. Our two special guests in uh, this program, this part of the program, are also members of the International Writing Program's Fall Residency. Just next to me is Fatina Algora, a poet and a journalist, now living in Belgium. Thank you for being here. Thank you. Next to her is Yuri Serebriansky, a fiction writer, a journalist, and an editor from Kazakhstan. So thank you, Yuri. Hi, thank you for having me here. Absolutely, good to have you. Um, as you know, it's no surprise to anyone, our conversation this evening is about journalism, about real and fake news, about the right to freely express one's point of view and report inconvenient truths without fear. And um, both Yuri and Fatina are going to talk to us a little bit about their, their experiences. Some may be similar, some may be quite different. Uh, I'll start with Fatina, who has had a long career in broadcasting in Gaza and is now living in Belgium. And you can tell us a little more of your personal story. Well, I was living, as you said, in Gaza, and I was known in my whole life as a Palestinian until last year. So right now I'm, uh, I'm honored to represent Belgium as well. Um, I worked in Gaza as a television anchor and radio anchor. And actually it was my dream since I was a little girl to be a journalist, but my life took me in another direction. And because it was my dream and I believed really in this dream, it just came come true, just like this, you know. I studied Arabic literature, and since I graduate, my work was in journalism. Mm -hmm. And I believe, actually, to be a good journalist, you have to read a lot, 
to know the language, to have the skills of the language. It's not about studying journalism, because I, I think a lot of people who went to journalism, uh, journalism university, but they are not really good journalists. But it's about how you can use your words, because we are talking here about the word and the value of the word. So uh, for me, it was like directly I, I worked at the Palestinian television. Uh, I host uh, uh, um, um, programs. Um, but actually, mostly it was cultural uh, programs, uh, both in television and in radio. After that, when I uh, moved to Belgium in 2010, I started to work with Al Jazeera as um, a reporter, a cultural reporter uh, with Al Jazeera. And it was like another experience for me because it was really working with uh, a, com a, like an, an, a newspaper or uh, actually broadcast like Al, Al Jazeera with this big name. It was challenging for me, but actually um, I think I, I, I get um, a lot of uh, experiences from working uh, there. Mm -hmm. So uh, it was all the time, um, even for as a writer, I think it's part of your job also um, being a journalist in a way because you are investigate uh, while you are reading and, and you are interview people who's inside you and people who you wrote about or you wrote them actually. Mm -hmm. So in a way, I think it's, it's, it's one way, but uh, two ways of seeing the same coin. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So what are some of the um, special challenges you would say in the transition you made from um, the Palestinian broadcasting uh, work you did into this international um, network, Al Jazeera? Well, because it, it wasn't the same, the same because in, in Palestine, so I cannot compare actually, uh, because of course in Palestine, especially uh, in, in Gaza uh, city, it was like uh, with um, a, a very limited uh, um, uh, production and so actually um, you cannot compare it like Al Jazeera but and also I was working as a, as a television anchor and a radio anchor so so we are talking about a different side of, a side of uh, media it's not liking uh, like writing um, uh, uh, an article or a reportage or making an interview or a news just writing here you are you own yourself and you own your language, your language and you can edit everything, not once, 10 times, you know, until you come with the best version of the, the, your work. But uh, especially most of the time I was live, either in, on uh, uh, television or um, radio, especially radio. It was my best moments actually behind uh, the, the mic of the radio because you are there connecting the people, your audience, only with your voice and the emotions that you can convince the people through your voice. Say so there is no um, television, uh, uh, you know, uh, camera and the place and decor and dresses. And so there is a lot of things that can track mm -hmm. the, mm -hmm. the audience, at the, uh, mm -hmm. but actually in, on uh, radio, it's only your voice with the people. And you have really to get to them, to convince them to keep listening to you. So I know exactly what you're doing here and yeah, how, yeah. <laughs> well, how much it's a challenge really yeah. uh, to, to be a um, uh, uh, radio anchor. Mm -hmm. But uh, television, of course, I loved my work. Actually, actually the third, if we are uh, talking about order, uh, radio, television, 
um, newspapers for yeah. me. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, I spent 30-some years of my life also as just a voice on the radio. Wow. So it's such a strange and wonderful thing when you actually get to see some of the faces of people who know yeah. you from that, from that um, voice alone. And um, so talk a little bit about the voice you put into the, the newspaper work you're doing now. Mm-hmm. Well, how does your voice come through in the writing you're doing now? Well, um, you mean the journalist, right? Yeah, I mean your your sensibilities. Mm -hmm. Well, um, actually, um, I I think I'm somebody who cannot write about anything, actually, unless if it's an order. And it's rarely, normally, I suggest the topics that I want Mm -hmm. to write Mm -hmm. about it to Al Jazeera, and they approve or not approve. Mm -hmm. So it's about the decision to approve it for them, Mm -hmm. but actually the topics that I want to write about it, it's... It's my story. Yeah. 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 So that's why it, it was re- a comfort for me to, to, to work it like this because I'm somebody who's really faithful to his beliefs. I just write what I want to write. Mm-hmm. And maybe that's why I was in the cultural field, not political, because in politi- I cannot be a politician. I cannot <laughs> write in, in politics because I will <laughs> ruin it <laughs> from the first. I will be kicked out from the beginning. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I cannot just be a, a writer in politics, but culture, it's my field. It's, mm-hmm. uh, the, I own the words here. I own mm-hmm. everything, and not to mention the um, big community and relationships between all the writers from uh, Palestine, outside Palestine, in Belgium, and other countries right now. it's I have friends from almost all over the world. And of course, thanks to IWB, now I have also another friends added to my list from 35 countries. Yeah and cultures, and actually, it's more than this, because some of us, we have multinationalities, like Opa, she's a Somalian, and she's uh, Italian, who's, by, uh, by the way, by accident lives in the same country that I live. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we are far away from each other 30 minutes, and we met here. We yeah. didn't know each other before, so yeah. Yeah. that's wonderful. Yeah, yeah. Oh, well, well, so this is uh, a good transition, I think, into Yuri, because Yuri is, an, actually, there are two things we're going to talk about tonight, your um, editor's position and also um, uh, a Polish uh, diaspora uh, publication you are responsible for or contribute to. So tell us about your life, where you're living now, how you concentrate your work. So I, I think I belong to... Uh, generation uh, from Soviet Union who carries this Soviet Soviet cultural code. But before I begin, let me um, start with the get back to uh, this recent sad news from Massachusetts. Uh, Richard Wilbur, a great American poet, died 14th of October. And he was also a translator of uh, Russian poets, Brodsky, mm-hmm. Yosif mm-hmm. Brodsky and Anna Akhmatova. Mm-hmm. And uh, these poets uh, just defined my attitude to the concept of freedom and uh, influenced it for my understanding of Soviet regime. So uh, I am w- I'm working as an editor of uh, Polish Diaspora magazines, which is in, in Polish had this, has uh, titled Almatinski Kurier Polonini. Um, I think I want to give uh, some background about the Polish diaspora yes. in Kazakhstan before I will share this, my experience. So, 
During the IWP panel discussion concerning the question of identity and rethinking home, some of my colleagues were speaking about post-colonial syndrome. And in Kazakhstanian case, it is not only a post-colonial issues related now mostly to Soviet period, but also an identity problem of nations deported to Kazakhstan by Stalin's and Soviet official decision before the Second World War and during the Second World War. I'm talking about Germans, I'm talking about Koreans, Kurdish, Chechen, Turk, Armenians, many others. So Polish from uh, the Ukraine were the first nation moved to Kazakhstan in 1936. Uh, today we can say that more than 200,000 Polish uh, displaced widely from the territory of Ukraine and also arrived in Kazakhstan independently after exhale from Siberian camps and other territories. And uh, these people had no right to leave their special settlements without permission of authorities until 1956. Mm when these absurd accusations of non-reliability of the nation were removed from Polish population of Soviet Union. So, in spite of this, several times I had to interview elder women who came from Ukraine as a girls, and I was really surprised that they did not retain feelings of uh, hatred of the Soviet regime and the people who are guilty for this tragedy. Uh, so today the ethnic pop Polish population of Kazakhstan is about uh, 35,000 people. Uh, the Polish diaspora is represented in the assembly of the people of Kazakhstan in the national political body of the country. And our magazine published in two languages, in Russian and in Polish. So Russian language in Kazakhstan is a, is a language of inter-ethnical um, uh, for internet, mm -hmm. we use it for okay mm -hmm. in common language, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but we also have uh, Kazakh state language. Uh, so here, uh, during my stay in Iowa, I'm working on a book which I want to be in a two parts. The first part consists of non-fiction stories of Polish families uh, who emigrate to Kazakhstan from the territory of Ukraine. I collected these stories since 2000. 12, when our Polish diaspora magazine was founded, and we began to publish these stories in every issue. Uh, another part of this book is the fiction story of a Polish girl departed in 1936 and faced with these incredible difficulties in her life. But I'm, trying, uh, I'm not trying to make this story just a drama. Uh, to the, from the very beginning, I thought about it. So I use my journalistic experience for writing always. Yeah, yeah This yeah. is my way, I think, mm -hmm. to work. So you said that you were so surprised to hear that some of the people who had been deported, forcibly moved from um, yeah. Ukraine, they don't carry hatred for the... Just like that. that. Yeah. yeah. So, so why? why? Why are they not resentful of this? Some of them treated uh, this Stalin regime of, of uh, like some kind of fate. Mm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I've been interviewed together with a, a, a professor from Chechen diaspora, um, 
and he said this very strange thing, very controversial, that uh, if, she, if he couldn't come to Kazakhstan, he couldn't finish a university. Um, so your, your magazine, the one we've been talking about, that is published both in Polish and in Russian, or in Kazakh? In, in uh, Polish in, and in Russian. And in, and in Russian, yeah. Do people in Poland read it, or only people in, uh, who are Polish descent in Kazakhstan? Of course, we mostly we focus it on uh, local, mm -hmm. on mm -hmm. the local uh, content. Mm -hmm. But uh, the Polish, some Polish families related to Kazakhstan, connected to Kazakhstan, mm -hmm. also um, are sus subscribers of our yeah. magazine. Sure. But I, and I'm always uh, very proud to see our magazine cover in uh, some village in Kazakhstan. Yeah, like a. Last last year issue is I I think is um I I treat it like a big responsibility. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um. So for for both of you, um, when have you faced difficulties uh, from authorities or from your editors about um, publishing something that you believe to be true that you know to be true? but that you are not allowed to publish. I'm sure this happens even in the cultural field. Yeah, of course. It happened to me uh, more than one time, actually. Uh, and actually, it happened more um, when I was working for Al Jazeera because they have their own policy. So sometimes you just write something or actually you write about a writer from a country that they don't want to be to, to write about this or to mention this country. Uh, sometimes even in cultural um, uh, topics, you write about something really conflict between like Kurdistan and, and Arab and Shia and Sunni, but related to uh, culture. So yeah, uh, sometimes I face that more than one time. And you know, in a way, you have to manipulate that. And that leads me to the fake news that, that you were telling about, because um, maybe as uh, somebody who lived until last year as a Palestinian, uh, for me, it was the first uh, news that I know I, I learned that it's, it was a fake news, one of the oldest uh, fake news in the world, that was uh, the Palestine was an empty land. So that's why it was giving to a people without a land. And of course, it was a fake, and it was, there was uh, movies built on this fake, actually, to convince the people that l this land, it was an empty land. Uh, even with the war that going on in Gaza, most of the time, like living people living in Gaza for 17 years right now, Gaza is a completely prison, and there is a lot of uh, photos and news coming out. But it's, you know, most of the people they know that it's just fake, because it, it doesn't represent, it doesn't captivate the the real life in Gaza. Because most of the people from outside, although with this war, they think that the people inside they are living like. Um, in a desert, in a way. They don't know, know that a lot, most of the people, they have I iPhone 6 or iPhone 7 or maybe right now 8 or Galaxy or whatever. I, I don't know, it's a commercial. <laughs> 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 so uh, we are living like a lot of people. They, they have, we have malls in Gaza. We have the, the sea. We have very chic hotels in Gaza that may be more expensive than here. But a lot of people, they only see this part of the world, which, which exists. Gaza, half of Gaza is destroyed completely. <laughs> so even with the rebuilding, and this is also from 
because either fake news or you choose the, 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 the people who's really in the high level of making news, they want only to focus on this part, to make it like it's the only face of like racism for instance we uh, we have like uh, most of the people because of the media they think that if you see an arab or a muslim directly they will think about he's a dangerous or she's a da dangerous actually the the, the muslims they are more than one billion uh, muslims around the world and these people who's doing that is just like bunch of hundreds so <laughs> you're talking about a very small main minority of, of Muslims or Arab, but when you compare it to the other people who's living just normal life, who was listening to, to Justin Bieber or <laughs> Michael De Jackson, they're, it's their idol till now, and following all the new uh, media and the new movies. And so this has come from the fake news, the fake vision that you want the people to think it. And I'm, th I'm sure that what we are living right now, it's the most bubble, m the most fake bubble that we are living right now. Because if you look to the social media right now, anybody can fake any news. Like what happened, this guy, this guy who was killed, they found him killed in his house. Uh, the one who, I, I, I don't remember the name, but actually he has like 10 websites, fake, fake news website, and he was, he, he said that he was the responsible, or actually one of the people who was responsible on uh, Trump, when, it, when <laughs> yeah, when the election, and uh, actually because he was faking news, and people were sharing this news without even going to the the source to know if it's right or it's wrong. Nowadays, you can see on Facebook, on Twitter, thousands, thousands of photos and news, and you just share it directly. It hits something inside you. It connect. It, it you feel relative to this news, and you just share it like like this without going to the source. So, <laughs> after all, which kind of world we are living in? Are we responsible mm -hmm. on that or not? This is a lot of questions, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. we need to find answers for oh, all yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. And I suspect it's the same for you. I mean, people in Kazakhstan have the same kinds of social media, and of course, you're very close to Russia there. So, uh, do you see fake news coming into your environment? Oh, yeah, of course. Well, uh, Christopher mentioned in the first block the revol revolutionaries who come to get first uh, radio, mm -hmm. TV, and mm -hmm. telegraph. Uh, I don't think Esquire office will be the first place that they will come. Uh, we, um, so, so, my, so some of my work um, is devoted to support the, of cultural process in Kazakhstan. And somehow Esquire today also is a media discussion platform for uh, social and sometimes political topics. Mm -hmm. So, but is it possible now in Kazakhstan if if I think about this, the Constitution guarantees freedom for us, freedom of speech and the press in our country. But referring, for example, to a Freedom House national report from 2015, the press advocacy group Adil Sos documented, documented 38 criminal cases against journalists and media outlets in 2014 including 15 defamation cases. Mm -hmm. There were also 106 civil su suits, of which 
1907s were for defamation. And um, a new attendance of, uh, to the legislation of on media caused heated discussion in the journalist community once again recently. Uh, a number of representatives of the media argue that these amendments will end any anti-corruption investigations in Kazakhstan, just like this. Another problem, of course, is um, related to the fact that Kazakhstan almost completely lives today in the Russian information field. The popularity rating of uh, Russian content are much higher than the local ones of several reasons, such as independence of media in Kazakhstan, uh, most of the media supported by government, and language priorities also for some social group, etc. And I'm talking not only about high quality or low quality content, but also about the propaganda, mm -hmm. and uh, f which comes from Russia with this content. But and it's uh, not only a side effect for us; we are like a target audience of this propaganda as well. Mm -hmm. But uh, in my case, in Esquire, I, Esquire for me is a possibility to give voice for different points of view. Mm -hmm. For example, uh, in the last issue we published a uh, Ukrainian author, uh, Vladimir Rafienko, uh, fragments of a new novel. And he moved from Donetsk to Kyiv recently. So somehow I'm trying to use uh, literature uh, to be in touch with these social topics mm -hmm. I be, because I still believe in literature. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. as a possibility to uh, be, uh, to have uh, news as the mm -hmm. Christopher also mentioned is the first block yes. in, in the right. 19th century. Right, right. Um, so uh, we've talked a little bit about social media and and these devices are all over the place and um, we've talked a lot about a lot of the negative things that can happen and the fake news that can be transmitted and all of us can fall prey to that. But you know, in the in the early days, in the Arab Spring, it was through it was through instant messaging and social media that people came out from their homes at great great danger. So it's 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 a very tricky and um, yeah. dense web you have to find your way through. There's yeah, uh, yeah. It, it's very tricky, like you said, and. Uh, and sometimes even you, even with your experience with the journalist, you can fall down with the, the, <laughs> the, <laughs> the net that they, it's, it was set there. So because it's a lot of news and sometimes it, they are clever. The people who's making these fake news mm -hmm. are clever. But you are right during the, the Arab sp Spring or... The, mm -hmm. the fake Arab Spring, <laughs> because it's the fake Arab Spring right now for us. In the beginning, only through, through social media, we could be there. And especially mm -hmm. in Tahrir Square in Cairo, yes, yes. which was the biggest evolution, the, the biggest, uh, biggest revolution ever. And it was like full of love and mm -hmm. challenge and hope. Mm -hmm. All of us were full of hope because we were following day and 27, mm -hmm. uh, 24 slash uh, 7, just following the revolution. Mm -hmm. I'm, I get to know most of the beautiful uh, writers through Facebook that before Facebook, I, I never imagined mm -hmm. to, to know them or to read about this, them, especially 
when I was in Gaza because it's limi very limited to, to receive books and mm -hmm. uh, uh, or um, newspapers like literature and newspapers. Mm -hmm. But only through uh, through Facebook, you can or Twitter, you can read for a lot of writers fr from from all over the world. Mm -hmm. Even the translation uh, translation poems also. So. Of course, it has two sides. Like television, when mm -hmm. it, when, when mm -hmm. it was in the mm -hmm. cables w in mm -hmm. the beginning, it mm -hmm. was like really a lot of people they were scared. Internet from the beginning, when before uh, uh, Facebook also. So it depends how or, and w from where, mm -hmm. from which perspective you gonna mm -hmm. deal with this. Mm -hmm. It's about you as a human being. And mm -hmm. sometimes I feel like some people <laughs> they don't. <laughs> we should put some limit for them mm -hmm. to access mm -hmm. Facebook mm -hmm. or social me media because it will ruin them. They are not like, you know, it's a, it's a very big miss there. Mm -hmm. And you have to be really c clever and armed in a way mm -hmm. with the culture mm -hmm. and knowledge. Mm -hmm. To, to survive there. Mm -hmm. And do you, through your publications, um, have you found ways to encourage your, your readers to always sort of think twice about what they're seeing, what they're hearing? What I mean, do you do that in subtle ways through the um, articles well, you published? Well, I'm trying to do my best with, to work with uh, fact-checking. Yeah. In these cases, I'm very careful. It's... Um, mm -hmm. Oh, oh, uh, in our case, in Kazakhstanian case, it's last years it's related to Ukrainian, mm -hmm. Ukraine, of course. Yes. And uh, I'm, I'm using my even personal connections with the Ukrainian authors mm -hmm. to be fa to be fast in this fact, fact yes. checking. Yes. So yes. this is my also uh, obligation mm -hmm. and responsibility. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Well, so interesting to talk to both of you this afternoon, and I am very grateful you would be here with us. Um, we have had Fatina Algora, and we have had Yuri Serebriansky with us, both of whom are here this fall as part of the International Writing Program. And I thank all of you who joined us this afternoon for World Canvas. If you would like to see any of our upcoming programs uh, listed or catch any of our past programs, uh, you can go to international.uiowa.edu. These programs are also available on iTunes and the Public Radio Exchange. So I want to say thank you to everyone for coming. Thank you especially thank you. to our Thanks guests. Thank it's you been a great pleasure. Me.